as we continue to recognize the 250th anniversary of the most famous hymn ever written, Amazing Grace, it's interesting to think about the different types of events where this song is often heard. Of course, it's heard in church services like this, but outside of church services, it's interesting to think about where this song is popular. You will hear Amazing Grace at weddings. You will hear Amazing Grace at funerals. You will hear Amazing Grace at sporting events. You will hear Amazing Grace at national memorial services that mark tragedies or anniversary of tragedies in our country and other countries. And what each of those events have in common is their polished, professional, well-orchestrated events where everything has its place and everything has a spot and everything has a script. And those events are parts of normal life, but you don't really see a lot of normal life at those events. There's certain way you're supposed to dress at a wedding. There's certain way you're supposed to dress at a funeral. And because you don't see a lot of normal life in those events, much of humanness is hidden. You don't really want weaknesses and flaws showing up on your wedding day. Nobody really likes that. You don't really want to highlight the thing you didn't like about this person at their funeral. No one talks about those kinds of things. I'm not saying next time you go to a funeral, you just lead out with that. And it's not what I'm getting towards. Don't hear me that saying that. But because amazing grace is often heard in those kinds of contexts, it can often shape our view of the song to think this song is lofty and disconnected from daily life and only for the people whose lives are neat and put together. But this could not be any further from the truth. A few hours after John Newton wrote the song Amazing Grace on January 1st, 1773, and sang it with his people for the very first time, and a few hours after he preached the sermon from 1 Chronicles 17, the passage that inspired the song Amazing Grace, a few hours after all that, he sat down to write a short recap of the day in his diary. And you'll see this on the screen. This is, this is what he wrote. At the top, you can see the little clip from his diary. It's his, his handwriting there. We're good. Everybody's good. All right, don't move. We're good. You can see the handwriting there, but then there's, there's what he wrote underneath it. He wrote, I preached this forenoon from 1 Chronicles 17, 16, and 17. Hope I was enabled to speak with some liberty but found my own heart sadly unaffected. I love this quote. He said, he just, he didn't know it at the time. He just wrote and performed with his church, sang with his church, the song that would become the most famous hymn ever written. And he just preached from 1 Chronicles 17, a sermon that went with this hymn. And at the end of the day, he wrote, I just found my heart sadly unaffected. I love that. It's so real. That's so human nature. That this song is not meant to be for formal, polished people. But the truths of this song are for messy, struggling, weak, lost, tired, unaffected people. Like me and you. That's why the song is called Amazing Grace, not Amazing Faith. He's praising God for his grace. Those are the first two words of the song. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. 
The song is about is a focus on the Lord and what he's done, not on us and how great we are. And you see this focus come really clearly in verses four and five of the hymn. That's what we're looking at this morning, looking at a verse each week. This week we're combining these two because they have really similar themes going on. The next week we'll wrap up by looking at the very last verse of the hymn. Verses four and five say this. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. Yes, when this flesh and heart shall fail and mortal life shall cease, I shall possess within the veil a life of joy and peace. We're going to understand what these words mean, the truths of these words, as we look at Psalm 16 together this morning. So go ahead and turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 16. Psalm 16. If you want to use the blue Bible in front of you, it's on page 453. Page 453. As we look at Psalm 16, we're going to see that weak, struggling, lost, unaffected people like John Newton and like, and like us can be satisfied and secured by the grace of God. God's grace satisfies us. God's grace secures us. And those are the two sections that we're going to look at this psalm through. The first being satisfied by God's grace. Satisfied by God's grace. Psalm 16 keeps us connected to the origin story of Amazing Grace. Because it's a song, it's a a poem written by King David, who was the focus of 1 Chronicles 17 that inspired John Newton to write the hymn. And in Psalm 16, let's look at the first six verses together and see the way David is reflecting on who God is towards him. Psalm 16, verse 1. Preserve me, O God. For in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have Fallen for me in pleasant places, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David, in this psalm, begins by asking God for help. You can see that in verse 1. The very first thing he says is, preserve me, O God. Or keep keep me safe, O God. Guard me, O God. We aren't told the exact specifics of what's going on in David's life when he writes these words. But there were plenty of situations in the life of David that could have caused him to pray this. Situations like the time when he was being chased by Saul because Saul was king at the time and David was going to be king and Saul wanted to kill David. Or like the time that later his own son tried to chase after him and kill him. David's life was not a life of ease and comfort. It was a life of danger and threats. And so when David prays, preserve me, this is not an empty prayer. 
He's not just trying to have some flowery religious language. He meant this. Preserve me, God. Keep me safe, O God. And then he says why he's prayed that. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I hide in you. I'm safe in you. You're my shelter from trouble. But how? How is God a refuge? God is not this physical fortress that you can hide in. He's God. He's not a physical place. Well, the next verse begins to explain how God can be our refuge. And this is where David rehearses the specifics of who the Lord is. Verse 2, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. I say to the Lord, Lord is likely all caps in your Bible, meaning God's name Yahweh in the Old Testament. He says, I say to the Lord, I say to the promise-keeping, merciful, gracious, faithful God, I say to that Lord, you are my Lord, you're my king, you're my ruler, you oversee my life. He says, God, I'm looking to you for help, and I'm looking only to you because I have no good apart from you, he says. I have no good apart from you. This is a foundational truth about God. This is why John Newton wrote in Amazing Grace, the Lord has promised good to me. God himself is the definition of good. He is the source of all good things. Anything in life that is good comes from him. That's why David's saying, God, I have no good apart from you. I'm not looking elsewhere. I'm not looking over your shoulder to see if there's a better offer. I'm not wondering if there's something better out there. I'm satisfied in you. I have no good apart from you. It's similar to what David writes in Psalm 23, a very well-known, probably the most famous psalm. The very first line where David writes, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Knowing the Lord, being guided by the Lord, being shepherded by the Lord, I shall not want. I have everything I need because I know him, because he's my God. I'm satisfied in him. This is what it means to be satisfied by God's grace. Because God has saved me, I'm content. My ultimate needs are met. He's the greatest good, and by his grace, I have him, so I'm satisfied. I take refuge in him. And this satisfaction doesn't just affect how David sees God. It also affects how David sees people, the people around him. Look what he says in verse 3. He writes, as for the saints in the land, this is like the, the godly people, the faithful people, the people who worship the Lord like I do. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. David says, I delight in the godly people around me who obey the Lord. I find joy in the people around me who are satisfied in God like I'm satisfied in God. And he says, I've lost any taste for living the lifestyle and running after the things Those who don't know God run after. When he says in verse 4 
that I will not take their names on my lips. I think he's talking about the names of the other gods. I don't worship those gods. I worship the Lord. I'm satisfied in him. When you, by God's grace, become satisfied in the Lord, you begin, not all at once, but you begin to become dissatisfied with the things that are not of the Lord. This is a, a mark of, of God's, God's work in a person's life, that it changes what you like. It changes what satisfies you. It changes your appetite. When I was in middle school, I had a very odd love for these peach gummy rings you could get in the vending machine at the school. Anybody know the candy I'm talking about? Yeah, it's like straight chemical, but they were so good. I would sit in class and just think about the time when school got out and I could go put my quarters in that machine and open up that package and smell that fake peach smell and eat those things. I love them. And a while back, we saw them at the store somewhere. I, it was, it's kind of like a gas station snack, a little like it's, you're on a trip and you're like, man, those look so good. I need those. And I got them and I tried them. They were horrible. I hated them. I was so, and maybe, maybe the ones at the middle school were different. I don't know, maybe they were fresher. I, I doubt it, but maybe. But I tried them and they were so gross. I did not like them anymore. I didn't want them anymore. My, my, my tastes have changed. My appetite has changed. If, if any, for those of you that are students at Oldham County Middle School, if you go to the middle school this week, go by the vending machine over there by the gym, if you see those peach gummies in there, I want you to go to the machine, put your money in, reach in, grab them out, open up the pack, and then walk over to the trash can and dump them in there, okay? Because I don't need that in my life, and they're not good. But, I mean, I used to love them. I used to love them. But over time, your, your taste changed, your appetite changed. And it's the same thing on a whole different level with God's grace. He transforms what you love. He transforms your appetite. He transforms what satisfies you. The things that used to satisfy you don't satisfy you anymore. And if we were honest, they didn't satisfy then either. He changes and shows you things that all the things you tried to find satisfaction from in life but never really did have been pointing you to him this whole time. And this sense of being satisfied by God's grace, it comes to a point in what David says in verses 5 and 6. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. So remember, this is a poem. That's a song that David's writing. So there's, there's imagery. And this imagery in verse 5 is, is a, of a dinner table, of a meal. And he says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. He's saying that if there's a thousand of the finest portions spread out on a table, and the Lord is an option. I choose the Lord because he satisfies me more than anything else that could satisfy me. He's my chosen portion. He's my cup. Only God can satisfy. Nothing else and no one else can satisfy your soul the way God can. David's saying, he's my joy. He's my treasure. That's why Newton writes in the hymn, he will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. 
He's saying, I'm going to be satisfied with God as long as my life endures. He's never going to let me down. And when David says, you hold my lot, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. He's saying, Lord, you control what happens in my life. You have set the borderlines of my life. You have fenced my life in by your grace to cause me to know you. You are my inheritance. You are my delight. You are my prize. How could somebody who just prayed, preserve me, O God, now pray, I have a beautiful inheritance? How could somebody who just prayed, keep me safe, God, now pray, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places? How could he do that? Because his satisfaction in life is completely out of this world, completely above this world. And that's what we'll see in this next half, that finding satisfaction in the Lord leads you to this unshakable security in the Lord. That's the second half of Psalm 16, that we're secured by God's grace. Secured by God's grace. Look with me at verses 7 through 11, and you'll see what I mean. David writes in verse 7, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love David's wording in verse 8 when he says, I have set the Lord always before me. The the, the Lord fills my sight. He is in front of me. I see the world through him. I see others through him. I see my circumstances through him, through his character, through his promises, through his truths. And he says, because God is always in front of me, because I see the world through him, I will not be shaken, he says at the end of verse 8. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Those are words of security. I I will not be shaken. That's a a confidence. That's a security that's there. Words of security in the middle of a prayer that started with words of insecurity. Keep me safe, oh God. Preserve me. Help me. But keep me safe, O God, has now turned into, because God is with me, I'm always safe. That doesn't mean life's never going to be hard. That doesn't mean I'll never face threats or danger or trials. But it means life will never be able to take from me what God has given me. And life will never be able to take from me what I have in him, no matter what comes my way. Newton wrote, the Lord has promised good to me. His word My hope secures. My hope is secure in his word, not in anything about me or my circumstances. Remember what David was doing in this first section. When we looked at verses 1 through 6, he was rehearsing truths about who God is, specifically who God is for him. So what I want us to see is that these truths are not just 
empty, dull statements. But David is reminding himself of truth and the way David himself has experienced that truth. You are my refuge, Lord. You are my greatest good. You are my treasure. You are my portion. You are my king. And these truths made David satisfied in the Lord to the point that he realized he's secure in the Lord. And this is all a work of God's grace. No one, not David, not us, no one deserves this from the Lord. But God in his grace shows us how helpless we are without him, which leads us to see how completely full of hope we are with him. In a relationship with God, we are given a satisfaction and we are given a security that is completely unrivaled and completely untouchable. Listen to David's response here in verse 9. Maybe this is the same response for you as you think about these truths in your own life. David responds in verse 9, Therefore, so because I'm satisfied in the Lord, because I'm secure in you, Lord, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. How is that possible? David is in the midst of a dangerous and difficult situation, yet his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices, his flesh dwells secure. Is that denial? Is that just ignoring bad things that are happening? No, experiencing God's grace elevates your satisfaction and it elevates your security completely outside of your circumstances. A ship that is caught in rough waters, a ship that is caught in a storm in the middle of the ocean, that ship does not anchor to itself to find security. When the ship cast down an anchor, it cast it to something stronger than itself. It cast it to something stronger than its current situation. And for us, Satisfaction and security only come when we are anchored to something more solid than who we are and more solid than where we're at in life, and that's only the Lord. We sang earlier, the grace of God has reached for me and pulled me from this raging sea, and he set me on solid ground. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. This is why David can say, my life is hard, but my heart is glad. It's why David can say, enemies are after me, but my flesh dwells secure. And then at the, at the end, in verse 10, he says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David is confident that God's gracious presence will never leave him. There will never be a moment in his life when he is without God. Nothing will be able to separate from him from God, even death itself will not be the end of his relationship with God. And that's true for anyone that puts their trust in the Lord. Anyone that puts their trust in the Lord can have this same satisfaction, this same security. And all of this leads to the conclusion of verse 11 when David says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the ultimate answer to David's prayer, keep me safe, O God. This is the ultimate answer to David's prayer, preserve me, O God. The answer to David's prayer is not escape from his circumstances, 
but God's presence. The answer to David's prayer is that I'm satisfied and secured because God is with me. The connection for us here, though, is not just David was satisfied in God and secured in God, so let's go and be satisfied and secured in God. Have a great week. I don't know about you, but I don't know how to muster that up. I can't make that happen in my own heart and mind. The connection is not from David to us. The connection has to be from David to Jesus, then to us. And the Bible itself sets us up for this. It does this for us. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. This is a book all the way in the New Testament. Acts chapter 2. I want you to turn there with me because I want you to see there's so many ways the Bible does this, but God in his wisdom and in his goodness uses his word to help us understand his word. And you'll see one example of this in Acts chapter 2. If you're using the the church Bible, it's on page 910. 910. Acts chapter 2. And you're going to see Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, giving a sermon. And he's going to quote Psalm 16 that we just spent the last few minutes looking at together. But pay attention to how Peter understands Psalm 16 and what that means for us. This is Acts chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 22. Peter says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's Jesus' death on the cross. Then verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, this is, the, this is where we begin to see the connection. For David says concerning him, concerning Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Peter says, quoting Psalm 16 in a sermon about Jesus, David was talking about Jesus when he wrote, and then quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. Why? What's what's the connection here? Well, look one more place, same chapter, verse 29. Acts 2, 29. Here's the connection Peter makes. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. I love this. It's very, like, straightforward, plain. Peter says, David said he wasn't going to be abandoned. His soul was not going to be abandoned to Hades or or let his holy one see corruption. And Peter says, but we all know David died. We can walk together and go see his tomb right now. But he goes on to say in verse 30, being therefore a prophet, talking about David, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, 
nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Peter points out that David said God would not let his holy one see corruption. And Peter's saying, we can go see the place where David's buried. He died. But then when Peter says in verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He's saying David knew God was going to give a descendant of him that would be on his throne forever. What does that connect us back to? First Chronicles 17. We saw this a few weeks ago, First Chronicles 17, where God makes a promise to David, one of your descendants is going to be on your throne forever and his kingdom's going to last forever. And David didn't know the exact details. David knew he wouldn't live forever, but he also knew that God promised his people a hope that would last forever. So I'm not saying Peter thinks or David knew. David, I'm not saying David knew the exact details that Jesus was going to come and there was going to be a resurrection. I'm not claiming that. I'm claiming that David trusted God's promises would be fulfilled. I'm saying that David knew God made a promise that there would be a descendant of his that would rule and reign forever, and David knew God would do it. And Peter's saying right now, I'm telling you who it is. It's Jesus. When Psalm 16 is giving you hope to be satisfied by God's grace and secure in God's grace, I'm saying to you that can only happen in Jesus. Because he's the one who died. He's the one who who rose again, because even though Jesus died on the cross, before death could get its full grip around his body, he killed death. Three days later, he came back from the dead. And this is the glory of God's grace, that when Jesus defeated death, he defeated it forever. When Jesus takes away sin, he takes it away forever. Therefore, when any of us, any, of, any person in this room, me or you, any of us surrender our lives to Jesus and trust him, he will give us a satisfaction and security that will last forever. Being satisfied and secured by grace means being satisfied and secured in Jesus. When John Newton felt unaffected at the end of the service that day, that was not a red flag. Nor was it a sign that, well, maybe this man didn't really believe what he wrote. I actually think, if anything, it's a sign he fully believed what he wrote. A sign that his satisfaction and security weren't in himself. Wrote this hymn, preached this sermon today, found my heart sadly unaffected. That's okay. Because our satisfaction and security aren't in us and our feelings, but in God and his grace. We're satisfied and secure in him and in Jesus. So even when we come here week after week, we're not chasing a feeling. We're not chasing an experience. There are often Sundays I preach a sermon and I feel like, yeah, that that was pretty bad. Sorry, everyone. Just want to apologize for that. Like I feel unaffected and you do too. That's, we're, we're human beings. But we rest in the fact that we can be content and confident that the Lord is a gracious God who shows us that he's our greatest good. He's our highest treasure. He's our portion. He's our refuge. Because once you know Jesus, 
you know satisfaction and security forever. Because he's the one that has came to come to rule and reign forever. And he's the one who at his right hand is everlasting joy and everlasting 